Pro Se is sponsored by Lexus Plus. With superior research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance all in one place, Lexus Plus lets you work with more focus, less friction, and no more switching from platform to platform. Finally, a legal experience as results-driven as you are. Get started today with a free trial by visiting LexisNexis.com slash Lexis Plus. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S. Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. No Alex Lawson this week. He's on vacation. Uh, He's on vacation. He just, he picked a week where uh, a million things happened in the news, so uh, we're going to try to get through a bunch of them today. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think we could probably, as we could most weeks, we could probably do a whole show about the uh, what's going on on Capitol Hill with the uh, perhaps next member of the U.S. Supreme Court, but it is uh, a fast-moving story. It's obviously a, uh, some in, in many ways, a more political story than a legal story, so right. uh, we're just going to nod to the fact that Amy Coney Barrett was uh, advanced out of, out of committee today. Um, we could see a vote uh, next week as early as Monday. Yeah, um, that one will be one we, of course, keep following. We'll 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 let you know more um, about what goes on with that. Uh, but we have a lot of other stuff to talk today, talk about today, including um, having our antitrust expert on the show to walk through uh, a big new suit against Google. It's a good talk. Um, I really kept it substantive by repeatedly making jokes about Microsoft's Bing. Uh, so it's the first time those kind of jokes have been really on point. So it worked out great. Yeah, I kept my Alta Vista references uh, to a minimum, but oh, would have uh, loved those. Yeah, uh, um, <laughs> but there's also other stuff going on. Bill, I know you have some um, election and voting law updates for us. Yeah, we've talked about how we're sort of, you know, expecting an onslaught of election uh, litigation around election day and afterwards, but we've actually seen quite a bit leading up to it as well. Um, we saw this week, just this week, we saw four different very impactful rulings about voting, um, uh, mostly about how the propriety of various fixes that states have done to accommodate the uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so, I mean, if we're seeing four big rulings, uh, two of which were by the U.S. Supreme Court, 12 days before the election, it... Um, doesn't exactly bode well for for our predictions about uh, how much there's going to be once the, the actual election takes place. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So there was a lot of this to cover, a lot of ground we have here. Where do you want to start? I think we should start in Iowa, um, where yesterday on Wednesday, we saw the state Supreme Court ruled um, in favor of a Republican-backed statute that... Uh, could ultimately, at least according to critics and dissenting judges, prevent um, uh, prevent absentee ballots from being sent to thousands of people in Iowa, which um, uh, is is a fairly important uh, state in the upcoming presidential election. Um, the law at issue requires officials to contact voters directly when there's information missing from their absentee ballot application. 
in previous elections, officials often just filled in the blanks using the the voter registration database. So if you left off some aspect of your address or anything like that, they would just look, they would cross-reference and see if they could fill it in themselves. Um, The new law makes them reach out to you directly via uh, phone or email to get that information. Yeah, that seems like a much higher administrative burden to get through and and remedy any deficiencies in those in those um, requests for ballots. Right. And that's what uh, critics of this law said. But um, the uh, a four judge majority of the Iowa Supreme Court said that the law would, uh, quote, protect the integrity and the security uh, of the ballots and, and did not impose the kind of significant burdens uh, on voters that would have allowed them to overturn it. Three dissenting justices, on the other hand, said that the ruling uh, will, quote, likely caused thousands of voters to not receive their ballot in time to use it. Um, they also said that that it would, you know, that this this was designed to help more people vote with absentee ballots so they don't have to go to the polls and so that this would increase health risks and all sorts of other problems because you're forcing people to go vote in person. I feel like uh, health risks and forcing people to vote in person is going to be the theme of a lot of what we're talking about as we keep running through the developments. Um, it sure is. Yeah. So what's the next one you want to tell us about? So on Tuesday night, um, the Fourth Circuit, a federal appellate court, ruled um, refused to undo a uh, a rule in North Carolina that allowed uh, election officials there to count absentee ballots so long as they were postmarked by Election Day and received up to nine days after Election Day. Now, in a typical year, the state only counts ballots that arrive within three days of Election Day for these absentee ballots. Um, but but this year, with the pandemic, they expanded that window uh, to to allow to make it easier for people to vote via the mail. Um, Republicans in the state then sought an emergency stay that would have reimposed the ordinary three day rule. And we should say in, in terms of all these, as 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 we often do on Pro Se, we really try to avoid politically charged, uh, you know, subjects and, and weighing in one way or the other. But for the most part, most of these, you know, the 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 Democrats obviously view themselves as having an advantage by having more people vote via the mail, and Republicans view themselves as having a disadvantage there. Um, that's about as neutral as we can characterize these. But, yeah. Um, but the 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 reason is, I mean. The reason I want to say that is because so many of these cases, it's 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 something that was designed to help people vote. And it's often it, well, it's in all of these. It's Republicans seeking to um, push things the other way. Um, but so th- this rule in North Carolina, um, uh, Republicans challenged it, saying, no, it should be the ordinary three day rule. Um, so the court um, uh, here, the Fourth Circuit, they they upheld this rule, this expanded window to vote via the mail. Three dissenting judges, three out of the 15 that voted in the case, uh, said that the ruling would lead to chaos. Uh, but the the 12-judge majority on the court said that they couldn't change the rules this close to a, an election. And, and even if they could, that the fears uh, sort of espoused by, by the challengers and by the dissenting judges were a bit overblown. The quote from the ruling, It's difficult to conceive what chaos our colleagues can possibly be envisioning here. Voter behavior cannot be impacted by our decision one way or the other. Voters must postmark their mail-in ballots on or before Election Day. 
Thus, the deadline extension only changes two things. More votes cast by mail will be counted rather than discarded because of mail delays, and fewer voters will have to risk contracting the novel coronavirus by voting in person. So they're basically saying, I mean, we we shouldn't change this so close to the election anyway. People need certainty. But even if we could, you know, the, the, changing the the extended window doesn't actually change the way that anyone who's voting is going to have to operate. It's just going to change things that sort of incidentally, because of mail delays, uh, got there late and, and it makes sure that those votes are counted. Okay. So if anybody's keeping track, the first case you talked about went against making it um, easier to have mm-hmm. these absentee ballots. The second case actually preserved um, some of the moves to count more votes. So one for each side there. Now you said there was some Supreme Court action. How did things play out at the high court? So yesterday, uh, by uh, again on Wednesday, by a a five to three vote, the Supreme Court overturned a ruling um, that had allowed county election officials in Alabama to offer curbside voting amid the pandemic. Um, the the state's Republican Secretary of State had ordered counties not to offer such voting, saying uh, as as has as is argued in many of these situations that these expanded uh, offerings these expanded opportunities to vote compromise the integrity of the vote. Um, so a group of senior citizens um, sued, saying that they wanted to be able to vote vote via this curbside voting. And a trial judge agreed with them. They said that counties can offer if they want to. They're not required to. But but it's just that the state of Alabama itself should not be telling counties they cannot do this, that you, you, you can do it if you want to. Um, a federal appeals court later re- refused to alter that ruling, held upheld it. Um, but yesterday, as I mentioned, um, a, a five-justice majority, the court's five conservative justices, overturned that ruling. Um, it, it, it didn't come with any sort of written opinion, um, but uh, which is typical, I should say, of, of these rulings. But the three uh, liberal justices wrote a dissent that sort of explained um, some of some of their uh, uh, issues with this and and said that this policy would would discriminate against older voters, very similar to what the trial judge had said. And it would and and, and anyone else who was vulnerable to the pandemic and, you know, wanted to take this. This, 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 what, what they viewed as as common sense sort of move to expand the ability to vote without actually going into the building. Okay, so that's another one in the category of restricting what voters could do. Um, but you said there were two at the high court. I know there was a, a much discussed one you saved for last. Let's get into that. Yeah, the biggest one uh, was actually the first one of the week. It was um, uh, it was a four four tie at the Supreme Court that allowed Pennsylvania to allowed election officials in Pennsylvania to count ballots that arrive up to three days after election day. Similar issue to what we saw in North Carolina. Um, the split ruling, which obviously is the result of of it being uh, the court being being down a justice, um, the split ruling left in place a decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that had said the extension was was uh, legal and needed because of the the pandemic and and mail delays. And um, the state Supreme Court's ruling that was upheld this week said that a similar thing that they have to be mailed by election day and they have to arrive within this three day window. Um, this was the most uh, politically charged, I think, of of these rulings. That um, it was a really big win for Democrats. Uh, Pennsylvania is obviously a an extremely important swing state in the upcoming election. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the the 
the efforts to vote by mail have been much more used by Democrats than they have been by, by Republicans. So it's yeah, a- this seemed like a big initial win, right? Um, but I also think uh, I was doing some reading, brushing up on this during the week because it's such a big ruling. And like you said, we are in that weird limbo of only having eight justices. Um, is this all good news for Democrats? Because it seems like maybe there's some uh, clouds on the horizon for them. I mean, in any immediate sense, the ruling is good for Democrats. But I mean, I think a lot of people viewed it as sort of an ominous sign of what what is ahead here, because uh, as we mentioned at the at the the very outset of the show, um, there is about to be a new Supreme Court justice on the bench. And there were already clearly four votes that would have overturned what Pennsylvania said about, you know, how the, the election was being conducted in the state. So it really, I think, underscored the um, the significance of this um, this new Supreme Court justice, Amy Coney Barrett, that might uh, that might be coming very soon, particularly given that she could be uh, on the bench before Election Day. So if we do have sort of the nightmare scenario where an actual national election comes down to the Supreme Court again, people are counting votes and they're seeing that there were four there that were willing to do this thing. And there's about to be a fifth. So that's some pretty heavy election talk. And I I don't mean to pivot pivot us into more um, crises, but I do have a big update on the fight against the opioid epidemic that I want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one, um, the Justice Department reached an $8 billion deal with Purdue Pharma. That's the maker of OxyContin over its marketing of that addictive painkiller. This is a pretty big deal. And not only because of that huge number, the agreement also includes a guilty plea to three felony counts and the dissolution of the company and the Sackler family's ownership interests in it. Yeah, I think I mean I think something that people have talked about a lot with the opioid crisis is uh, that you know that that there haven't been these kind of big big penalties that we're seeing here. Um, what I mean, what what exactly? How exactly did we get to this one? And you know what exactly happened this week? Yeah, there's there've been thousands of opioid suits, and we've talked about various like groupings of them on the show before. But um, in this one, Purdue pleaded guilty to conspiring to defraud the United States, violating violating the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act and violating some anti-kickback laws. So some pretty serious things that they um, Mm -hmm. pleaded guilty to here. Basically, what they're accused of doing is aggressively and often illegally pushing OxyContin and fueling the opioid crisis that ensued. The crisis is big. I mean, I don't think I need to say that, but when I was doing a little research to put this together, the numbers are really startling. Since 1999, opioids have killed as many as 450,000 Americans. Recent estimates show that more than 130 people in the country die from opioid overdoses every single day. Um, State attorneys general that have sued Purdue say that the Sackler family caused almost $2.16 trillion in damages to the United States after two decades of pushing these drugs. I mean, it's it's crazy numbers we're talking about here. Um, And also, just for more context, this is the second time Purdue has made a deal with the Justice Department. It pled guilty in 2007 to criminal charges over marketing OxyContin. And at that time, it agreed to pay $600 million in sanctions. So we've gone from $600 million at that stage to now this big, bigger, more global agreement that's $8 billion. So what exactly did they do that got us from that 
earlier settlement, which, you know, 600 million is nothing to sneeze at, but it's not 8 billion. How did we get from there to here? Yeah, so here's what the DOJ says that Purdue did that they agreed to in the settlement. The company marketed opioids to more than 100 doctors that it suspected of writing illegal prescriptions. It lied about all of this to the DEA. Purdue also paid illegal kickbacks to doctors and to this electronic health records company. It also violated the False Claims Act because it used aggressive marketing tactics to convince doctors to unnecessarily prescribe. And those prescriptions were often paid for by Medicare and Medicaid. So you can see that the government has a pretty strong interest there to protect all of that. So these settlements always have a top line figure, but could you break down uh, a little bit more in, in an itemized way what this $8 billion covers, how exactly yeah. this is all happening? There's a... There's a lot of parts of this one. And instead of getting too much into the figures, I did just want to give some sort of like top line additional things worth knowing about this sort of broad agreement. One big thing is that the Sacklers themselves, the family, has agreed to pay $225 million in civil penalties. Prosecutors were also quick to point out that the agreement doesn't bar the filing of criminal charges against Purdue executives or individual Sacklers later on. So they've agreed to pay a big sum. They also might be hit with more later if uh, that's deemed warranted down the road. Yeah. Another big wrinkle in this one is that Purdue's currently in bankruptcy proceedings. I think you might remember this. I'm pretty sure we talked about it on Pro Se before, that there was some talk of did they go into bankruptcy to try to avoid all of this uh, liability. Um, But they're in those proceedings right now. So the New York Bankruptcy Court has to approve the settlement. So that's just sort of something to watch for on the horizon. Um, And then there's another really interesting part of this, that one of the terms is that the company itself will be dissolved The Sacklers have to give up their ownership, and in its place, the company is going to be converted into, um, they call it a public benefit company. Mm -hmm. So the way that would work is that the the public benefit company would still make money. They would have limited sales of OxyContin. They would also sell some overdose reversing medications. But all the money that they, they generate would go toward opioid abatement. I love the idea of just uh, the one of the terms of the, one of the terms of the settlement is you no longer get to exist and we're going to take all your money from here on out because you've you really mean, yeah it's it's a really interesting part of all of this I think and especially with some additional background here where obviously these the fights with Purdue and others over the opioid crisis have been going on for a while. Um, some states, a whole a whole grouping of them, have sued Purdue and they don't love this plan. Um, they say it doesn't actually hold the Sacklers themselves fully accountable. And they say Mm. the family was a big part of the problem, allegedly, here. Um, New York Attorney General Letitia James said the deal doesn't address hundreds of thousands of deaths connected to the the epidemic. It basically lets the Sackler family off the hook. So I wanted to read a quote from her. Sure. It allows billionaires to keep their billions without any accounting for how much they really made. From the beginning, we've aimed to unearth how much the Sacklers actually profited and how much they continue to hide away. While no amount of money can ever compensate the pain that so many now know, we will continue to litigate our case through the courts and secure every cent we can to limit future opioid addictions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at this and you go, well, eight billion is a lot of money, but it's also not, you know, it's not prison time. It's not we we've put a lot of people in jail in this country over drugs. It's it's, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter. 
And I think also the eight billion, uh, only the two hundred twenty-five million is from the family itself. So right. the bulk of this is coming from the company. And I think Letitia James and others are making the argument that like the Sacklers themselves maybe should be on mm-hmm. the hook for more, a bigger percentage of that. Um, I did want to leave us, you know, for some balance here with what Purdue has said about this whole um, potential settlement of all of this. Uh, the company said. We reached today's agreement in order to facilitate a global resolution that directs substantial funding to communities in need rather than years of legal proceedings. This proposed resolution includes relinquishing our ownership of Purdue that's been valued between 10 and 12 billion, more than double all Purdue profits the Sackler family retained since introduction of Oxycontin. So they just disagree on how much the Sacklers should be on the hook. Once again, Pro Se is sponsored by Lexus Plus. With superior research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance all in one place, Lexus Plus lets you work with more focus, less friction, and no more switching from platform to platform. Finally, a legal experience as results-driven as you are. Get started today with a free trial by visiting LexisNexis.com slash Lexis Plus. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S. Before we get to our guest this week, we have a bit of a recommendation of a podcast you might want to check out. It's called Deep Background, and it's for you if the 24-hour news cycle leaves you feeling like you know everything, but you really understand nothing. Deep Background is hosted by Harvard Law School professor Noah Feldman, and every week Noah interviews experts and policymakers to explore context behind the headlines. We think pro state listeners might want to check this one out because the Supreme Court nomination process is well underway and the elections dominating the news. So Noah's expertise in constitutional law is more relevant than ever. And here's what you might be most interested in. This fall, he's presenting a special five-part series called Deep Bench. It tells the inside story of how the legal conservatives have gained power and how they now find themselves in the grips of a civil war among conservatives about the future of their movement. Again, the name of the show is Deep Background. It's brought to you by Pushkin Industries. You can subscribe or download at Apple Podcasts. The U.S. Department of Justice hit Google with a sweeping antitrust lawsuit on Tuesday, accusing the tech giant of maintaining an illegal monopoly over Internet search and online advertising. The case comes amid a broader scrutiny into the influence wielded by big tech companies over everyday life. Here to explain the whole situation is Matt Perlman, Law 360's senior reporter on The Competition Beat. Thanks for coming on the show, Matt. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, antitrust is always tricky to explain, but I think people are really interested in this one because, you know, Google's such a big part of American life. People follow along with what's going on with with that service, that company. Um, The government says it's basically so big that it's violating the law. What is the the broad brushstrokes of what the, the case is all about? Yeah, so uh, so basically, the government is saying that Google has violated the law by illegally maintaining its monopoly positions uh, in a couple of markets. So what that means basically is that Google has a, a very dominant search engine, and it's used uh, that business to largely take over another market, a market for advertising that's sold next to search results on the web. Mm-hmm. And so 
the way they did this was uh, that they struck a bunch of deals uh, where they pay billions of dollars to companies like Apple and Samsung uh, to become the, fault, the default search engine on, uh, on mobile devices and, on, and desktop computers. And then they also put restrictions on the manufacturers that use their open source Android operating system that make them like put a bundle of Google apps uh, on, on all of their devices and display them prominently. And uh, each of those apps also uh, drives traffic back to Google search engine, which sort of cements its dominance in, in that market, too. And so basically, the DOJ says that all of these deals that Google has struck um, have kept any meaningful search or search advertising companies from emerging. So the, the DOJ says these deals have kept any, any meaningful search or search advertising competitors from emerging uh, because both types of businesses are, are interdependent and they're only effective once they have a lot of users. So Google basically just has too much of a head start in, in all of these markets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Google was already popular, but when you run when you ran down through that list of all the deals that they have with various companies and the things they've actively done to make themselves the number one and only search engine anyone uses, it does start to sound pretty um, pretty ubiquitous where they are and how they position themselves. But I mean, imagine Google doesn't view it this way. They probably think they're just doing a great business. Yeah, yeah. So, ba- so basically, Google's argument is that you know its search engine and and all of its other services are only popular because they they work really well and people like them. Uh, and, and so, like the reason it cuts these deals to become the default search engine on these devices is so that uh, it's easier for people to access Google. Right. Uh, so yeah, they compare it to like a cereal brand paying a grocery store for better placement on the shelf, and like it doesn't. Uh, you know, it doesn't limit their competitors in, in any way because you can always just go down a different aisle and pick out, uh, a, you know, a competitor cereal. Look, I mean, I myself have always been sort of a Bing guy. Um, I just, <laughs> you know, I'm always looking, whenever I'm looking to Bing stuff on the web, I turn to Bing. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's it's interesting, this idea, right, that, that you know, there are, it's it's not exactly analogous to a situation where they've made it difficult to go get these things. You can really just you can flip those default things to make another search provider. Your those things exist out there, so it's it's harder to it's it's an interesting um, uh, it's an interesting scenario for antitrust law to to tackle. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the other thing that Google says too is that the DOJ is not even like looking at the markets right, and. and so basically, that that argument is saying that the government hadn't shown that they even have a monopoly position in any market. Uh, so, be, like, basically, Google says that its search engine doesn't just compete against other search engines the way the DOJ says; hmm. it also competes against all sorts of other websites. So, like, when someone wants news, they don't necessarily go to Google; they might just go to Twitter directly. Uh, or if they're looking for a flight, they might go directly to Expedia. They're not, you know, not necessarily going to start with a search engine. Now, I mentioned uh, Microsoft's search engine sort of in jest a second ago, but I mean, Microsoft is an interesting sort of place for us to pivot here because the precedent that I think folks think of when they see this lawsuit is the sort of famous uh, lawsuit, similar lawsuit that was brought against Microsoft in the, in the, uh, in the late 1990s over, over the dominance of, of Windows at the time. How does this case compare to that one? I mean, how is it different? How is it similar? And and is there anything we can we can glean from how that one turned out? Yeah, I mean, so, so the cases are definitely similar uh, in that they're targeting large, like consumer facing technology companies uh, for her illegally extending their dominance. So that means, like, so the atmospherics are similar. We have like popular, powerful companies with well known leaders that are being reined in by the government. Uh, in both cases, deal with digital markets that are changing quickly. Um, 
So, and also, I guess the conduct is kind of similar. Uh, so Microsoft is accused of placing illegal restrictions on its dominant Windows operating system, including tying uh, Internet Explorer, its free browser. So you couldn't get Windows without Internet Explorer. Um, so Microsoft was basically concerned about competing browsers like Netscape ultimately threatening the dominance of its operating system. Like you wouldn't need to use their operating system because of uh, these other software mm-hmm. that, that was out there. So... Um, now, Google is being targeted just for extending its search monopoly into the advertising space through a web of restrictive agreements. So the, the conduct is a little different. Um, and the Microsoft case involves some additional violations, but both cases involve violations of, of the, the, the American law against monopolization and, and maintenance of monopolies. So the, the Section 2 of the is, Sherman Act. Yeah, I think this is so interesting, though, even just in the context of um, you start talking about Microsoft and, and what the worry was then. And it almost sounds quaint now just because the landscape of tech changes so quickly. I think it's so interesting that we have an intersection here where um, Google was really big and no one had big objections to it then. But as soon as they start having these side deals about advertising, suddenly they've gone too far. So it's going to be kind of fascinating to see where the line is drawn about what exactly is a monopoly for these types of tech companies and how has that changed in the current landscape? Well, and let, I mean, let's talk about the outcome of the Microsoft case and then use that to sort of go on to how this one might come out. I mean, what happened with Microsoft in terms of remedies or how that case came out and, you know, what might we see here with, with, uh, the Google case? Yeah. So the Microsoft case was was a a little complicated. It involved like a contingent of of states, attorney generals that had also joined on to, and and there were a couple of separate lawsuits that were consolidated. But, but at at the end of the, like, at the end of the day, the DOJ did uh, want to break up Microsoft. It, it, it it looked to do so in in the lawsuit. Um, It won in a district court. It actually got an an order in a district court that could have broken Microsoft up. Uh, But when Microsoft appealed, the appellate court gave sort of a mixed ruling and, and, and part of which said that the remedy was, was basically too aggressive. Uh, and so when that happened, the DOJ decided to settle and they took a settlement from Microsoft where Microsoft basically just agreed to, uh, to, to change its ways to, to stop doing what it was doing. So do we think that gives us lessons for Google? I mean, um, I know maybe a little early to prognosticate this just got filed, but do we think we could potentially see them having to break up into smaller divisions that are little baby Googles or <laughs> Would they just maybe settle here too, like Microsoft did, and and say that they're not going to have some of these um, agreements that restrict people in in this advertising space? Yeah, I mean, I would say it'd be very surprising to see to see a court break the company up or, or even require a spinoff. Uh, and basically, it's because like even if a judge finds that Google violated the law, they're going to have to they're going to look for like the least onerous fix for the problem. So if, if the least onerous thing to, to do to fix the problem would be to uh, to kill the contracts, then, then they'll just do that. Um, I guess the question becomes like whether or not that has an impact, like whether or not Google is so entrenched that eliminating these contracts won't even affect the markets. And so if a judge says sees that or finds that, uh, then they might look for like a spinoff or something like that. But it, a spinoff would also have to create a viable competitor to Google. And there's a lot of questions about whether that's even possible. Right. I, there sure is. I mean, Bill made a joke early about Bing, which is a big competitor. But in comparison to Google, it feels like a little fly buzzing around its head. Nothing more. Right. But Google would also say that Bing makes some of these same uh, types of deals that, that they do that right, become the right. default search engine in, in other areas. I'm still riding for uh, Ask Jeeves. I don't know if anybody else is uh, Big comeback? Still... Yeah, yeah, sure. I think I'm just ready. I'm ready. <laughs> well, I don't have to ask Jeeves to know that I think we're wrapped up for this segment. Thanks for, uh, thanks for explaining it all, Matt. This can be so complicated. It was nice to have you on. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. 
So, Bill, I think we're just about wrapped up for today. Um, don't have anything for Offbeat, but I did want to take just a minute to chat with you and let our listeners know about something else big that was put out by Law360 this week, and that's our annual glass ceiling report. It's a, uh, I, I was reading through it right before we got on the air. It's, um, you know, everyone should head on over to Law360, give it a read. It's, um, you know, it's the, the, the numbers aren't great in terms of where the industry is at, but it's, it's, it's always, um, I think, uh, a fascinating look at the efforts that are being made. And it's important to keep the focus on it because, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's the, 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 there hasn't been quite as much movement as we would hope. Yeah, I mean, we, we're in an unfortunate spot many years to just report that, you know, these numbers are all about how women are faring in the legal profession. And the progress is, I mean, we use words like incremental, glacial. I mean, it, it's truly just very slow and, and pretty disheartening, to be honest. Um but the reporting's pretty interesting. I mean, it shows yet again this year that less than a quarter of equity partners are women. It's something around 22%. So you can read more about that and how the other levels of, of law firm life are treating women. Um, but also we have reporting about things that firms can do proactively to try to address this problem. So if you're more interested in some of that, you can check out law360.com and find those stories. Yeah, there's a lot of great content. Everyone should go check it out. Yeah, thanks for being with me today, Bill. Um, Helping me hold it down with Alex out. See you again next week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Matt Perlman, and contributing reporters, Haley Knoth, Vince Sullivan, and Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like our show, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a written review. That helps other people find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, including that great glass ceiling report, go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.